Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not already doing so, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Don Howard, Chief Executive Officer of the James Irvine Foundation. Now, the James Irvine Foundation is a private, independent foundation that provided about $180 million in grants last year, in 2023, to organizations in California. And since they were founded back in 1937, they've made more than $2.6 billion worth of grants throughout California. So today, the focus of conversation is California and the work that the James Irvine Foundation is doing, their singular focus, their singular goal is a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. So on that note, and without further ado, Don, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, you're all the way out there in California. I'm here in the UK, so we do have time difference. And you got up maybe a little bit early, but I'm certainly up a little bit later. Uh, Well, thanks for staying up late for me. uh, Well, you know, anything we can do for our friends. So you're the president and the chief executive officer of the James Irvine Foundation. I'd love to find out what the foundation is doing, what it's all about. Great. Well, let me tell you, we're an 85-year-old private independent foundation, independent of any family or company. That's pretty important. So that's one thing to know. Second thing to know is we are focused exclusively on California, a gift of our benefactor, giving us a focus that allows us to be pretty strategic. Uh, we have fo- we've chosen to have a singular goal, ensuring that every low-income worker has the power to advance economically. And every word in there was very intentionally chosen. Uh, we focus on low-income workers. Our outcome goal is economic mobility. And we believe that power for workers is essential. So the way we organize ourselves, last year we made about uh, 225 grants to a, a, a grant-making of about $180 million. And even that, sort of a drop in the bucket relative to California's economy. But we f- focus on four different things. One is making sure that folks have on-ramps to good jobs. And we believe that needs to be paired with helping workers have more power in the economy, power to affect the decisions that influence their lives and determine their economic opportunities. We also think communities need to come together to plan for their future economies, to make sure those are inclusive, equitable, climate resilient. And we need to have a better safety net. So when folks aren't able to get ahead economically, they can be caught and taken care of and make sure they have the resources they need to step back up. The um, benefactor of the foundation was a fellow named James Irvine, and he owned a considerable part of Orange County. And he left that uh, half of his wealth to benefit the people of California. Excellent. And so 85 years, uh, what's the team look like? Uh, where, where are you based exactly in California? Yeah, you might think I'm in Irvine. Uh, which is the city in Southern California. I'm not. I'm in San Francisco. The family had their headquarters as their business um, and where they lived in here in San Francisco. So my uh, our headquarters, my home is here in San Francisco. We also have an LA office in downtown LA. And between the two, we have about 85 employees right now. And uh, we're a very diverse collection of folks. We have some folks who are experts in philanthropy, some folks who are expert in labor uh, organizing, and then folks like myself who have business backgrounds and bring a kind of strategy mindset to the work. Got you, got you. And um, well, you business backgrounds and Stanford MBA, so I think that's that's pretty legit. That's pretty good. Um, tell me a little bit. So you mentioned 180 million, roughly, in grants. Um, 
are you mainly a grant maker or do you also uh, are you also an operating foundation we are not an operating foundation we make grants to um, wonderful organizations strong leaders groups that are really uh, responsible and uh, held accountable to by their communities and by their members and we engage in what we think of as trust-based philanthropy try to provide as much general operating support as we can uh, allow our grantees to set the direction uh, that they th think the field should go and then we resource ideas that they have for our impact at scale we say so uh, policy and systems change so we sort of start with our core grantees their wisdom their knowledge their frankly accountability to communities and help take their ideas to scale has that been a transition a, a movement towards trust-based philanthropy i know you know with the pandemic uh, many organizations who perhaps before were highly prescriptive have changed a little bit their approach. Uh, what's been your journey on that front? And it's great that you're you're taking that approach. Well, if it's okay if I step back and share a bit about my own journey. How by, I got to by all means, why not? Yeah, you mentioned Stanford, uh, MBA and undergrad. Don't hold it against me. Mm -hmm. um, I started my career in corporate strategy consulting, um, and then uh, there came a point uh, late '90s where I found out I was infected with HIV. And I began to do more street activism and get more involved in my community. It was really the height of the pandemic. And I came to realize what a small group of people can do to make change in the world. And that's when my career pivoted from working for corporations to thinking about how to support nonprofits and foundations. I was fortunate that I was able to join a nonprofit consulting group called the Bridgespan Group. Sure. Spun out a Bain & Company and take some of my strategy skills, my background in business, and apply them to strategy and operations for foundations and nonprofits. I was there for about 11 years, ended up leading the San Francisco office, and had uh, done consulting work with about 15 different um, larger foundations. And it come to a point of view on what I thought was most effective in terms of grant making from those clients I'd had. And I think our strategy somewhat as a, as a uh, greatest hits of, of the clients I had when I was at Bridgespan and one of the things that I saw most uh, as one of the pathologies of philanthropic funding was a real focus on project-based funding uh, in an effort to be more accountable as institutions, philanthropists and foundations began to put forward their ideas for social change and began to fund nonprofits to sort of fit in a box on a theory of change and do what they thought from the foundation's perspective was the right thing to do. And a lot of those organizations, it really wrapped them around the axle and often left them with too few resources to invest in their infrastructure and to be able to innovate on their own and pivot and adapt to things that they were seeing in their work. So it was really important to me and our board here at Irvine that we provide as much flexible support as we could. And we did want to stay strategic and accountable, so we chose a singular goal. We have groups of grantees and initiatives that are working on a collective set of issues, sort of a field. We provide them with as much flexible support as we can. And that really comes from my experience and experience of a lot of philanthropists and more importantly, leaders of nonprofits, that project-based funding really was not helping them achieve their goals. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of our organizations say, oh, well, you know, we're embracing trust-based philanthropy. But when it comes down to it, you know, what they say and what they do sometimes doesn't quite align. So it's, it's great to hear your journey and, and your you know, your embrace of this. And tell me a little bit. Of, go ahead. to catch you off a little bit there, but we could do better. There's you always room okay. for improvement. Um, about 50% of our grant dollars at this point are general operating support or flexible support. There's still a number of grantees who are doing 
you know, for uh, who are supporting a field with a particular project, and we fund them through project-based grant making. And there are organizations that work outside of California, and we have to fund them with project-based grant making. And then we do a lot of regranting, which is another aspect of our strategy that I'm really proud of. We put resources into community groups that can then identify who else in their community and their field of interest should receive those funds. And those big regranting dollars are done technically on a project-based level, but we see those relationships with groups, community foundations, grassroots organizations, uh, ethnically focused or community focused um, foundations. We make big grants to them. They regrant to smaller organizations. They know better who to give the money to. And frankly, they're more efficient at doing it than a big foundation. That's great. That's great. And it's great that you're saying, oh, well, we could do better uh, because that's a nice sort of self-awareness. Um, what advice would you give to some of those folks who are listening, who are running foundations, who are perhaps thinking about giving to foundations, who are grappling with this? Because it's not easy. Like the notion of trust-based philanthropy sounds great, uh, but it's not easy then, you know, it's like, well, you know, I don't want to be fast and loose with the with these funds and I can't not have people reporting back you know, all of these details and what advice do you have for someone who's experienced in that in that journey keen on moving even better what do you say well first trust uh the field trust leaders in the field and that's hard to do um i think sometimes we can get a little arrogant we go into our conference rooms we begin to chart things out on whiteboards and we sort of suck up into the um into the philanthropy space the responsibility for strategy and the ideas for solving social problems. And we're not proximate. You know, who are we at the end of the day, frankly, quote unquote, elites who are lucky, fortunate, privileged to be in these positions, but we're not closest, proximate and accountable to communities. So you need to turn it over uh, to community leaders. There are a whole bunch of organizational constraints. And I can think in my mind's eye sort of of the foundations who have living benefactors or who have a requirement um, from their sort of uh, creation to focus on certain areas and to do a certain sort of grant making. So it's not possible for everyone. But I, to your point earlier, I think the pandemic taught us that these sort of rigid theories of how social change occurs have to be thrown out the window when large events happen. And if we learn nothing, it's that you need to be flexible. And that means you need to provide flexible support. I'd also say that it's easier to do when you have a clear outcome goal. And we're fortunate to have been able to align all of our grant making toward a singular goal. When you have different program silos and you tend to hire these like PhDs and whatever the topic is, they have a point of view. And then the grant making in that program becomes a reflection maybe of their PhD thesis or something that they um, sort of what they've come to believe. So I think the structure also matters and your ability to relax some of the constraints. Yeah. Is it very useful, the fact that you are pretty much there in the front lines? In other words, you're not in Geneva giving money to California. You're in California giving money to Californians and looking at the system in California. Most certainly. Yeah. Um, as I said earlier, one of the gifts our benefactor left was a focus on California. We're you know, arguably the world's fourth largest economy, which is still means we're outmatched by far. All of the philanthropy in California is really a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed. But it's hard to have a strategy and it's hard to know the community, understand who those leaders are when you're working all around the world. So part of ph philanthropic strategy is having some anchors around which to plan. And we're fortunate to have California as our anchor. And we're in the communities, we have staffed ourselves to have 
uh, staff members who are in touch regularly on the ground or living in the communities that we seek to, to focus on. We've also picked five communities in the state where we go deeper, which allows them to have both more knowledge and understanding. There are communities where there's too little philanthropy, and so the dollars can have a greater difference. And it also informs then the other work we do. And the communities we're in, for those who know California, are Salinas, Stockton, Fresno, San Bernardino, and Riverside. And they're often overlooked communities. And frankly, they are where the growth in the state is happening. There's where increasing diversity, greater need, and where the uh, issues of climate change and infrastructure needs are becoming all the more apparent. And so we see their futures as being pretty important to the future of the state. Give us a little bit of an overview of, of the state of affairs in California. And I know that's a, it's a short question for what could conceivably be a three day three days worth of answers. Um, but what are the salient points here that we, we need to understand about California? I haven't been to California in a few years. I know folks who have moved from San Francisco to L.A. not that long ago because perhaps they're finding San Francisco is socially, there's some challenges there. Give us a little bit of a flavor, you know, for, for our global listeners. Let me just say, um, uh, California, the uh, you know, the reports of our death are premature. Uh, there is so much happening in the state. Um, the assets we have, folks may be familiar with, but a tremendous amount of innovation. We have a rich community of uh, venture capital. We have smart and dynamic folks. And it's historically been a place where you can recreate yourself and where change is happening. We also have amazing natural resources uh, to draw upon, you know, perhaps at the center of that are the people of California, about 40 million or so, tremendously diverse and uh, eager, hardworking folks who have an aspiration to improve their families' economic opportunities and their economic situation. So that said, there's also a bunch of challenges. Um, one is our infrastructure, like the rest of the country, is crumbling. We're seeing the effects of climate change. We see a unique effect perhaps than other places do, but it's happening everywhere. Um, and we have an incredible divide between the haves and the have-nots. Frankly, that's the reason we chose to focus on income inequality and economic opportunity, conversely, economic justice as a singular goal of the foundation. And uh, the, uh, you know, the doom loop arguments about some of the cities and um, especially San Francisco, it's not new. San Francisco has gone through boom and bust cycles since the gold rush. And invariably, we recreate ourselves and have some hopes at this point that AI may be that catalyst that helps San Francisco uh, get back on track. But the issues of homelessness, poverty, uh, mental health issues, they're acute. And a lot of folks trying to address those problems, but we have a lot of, a lot of road, a lot of work to do. In terms of that, of that, uh, a lot of work to do, as it were, Give us a little bit of uh, of insight into what that actually looks like. So that $180 million worth of grants, the income inequality you're highlighting, the the social challenges, uh, bring us into some of these uh, grants. What are they doing? What what, what, are, what are what are some of these drivers that you're you're grabbing on to to improve things? The one way we're thinking about it is the income inequality, crumbling infrastructure, climate change, existential threats, but also jobs opportunities. And I have a lot of hope. We do a lot of hope that there's a window of opportunity here. If we make the right decisions, we can recreate California's middle class. We've done it before. Uh, sadly, when we did it before, it wasn't for everyone. It was for a select group of folks. But hopefully this time we can use the resources, a huge amount of federal and state resources coming to California. 
and that those can be a catalyst for a more inclusive as well as resilient economy. So one thing I'm most excited about is uh, an effort. We actually, our grantees helped catalyze, uh, but now has been taken statewide. It's a state program to provide resources to regions around California to plan for their future economies, to have those coalitions that do the planning include grassroots organization leaders, civic leaders, elected leaders, business leaders, labor leaders, coming together and saying, what do we want to see for our economy in Fresno? And what do we think the best directions are to build on what we have, but to create inclusive and equitable opportunities looking ahead into the future? And the state has resourced that. Philanthropies come together. It's a great place for philanthropy to play a catalytic role. The organizations, the community-based organizations and grassroots leaders, they're participating in these planning efforts but they have too few people. These are small organizations and there's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of tables to be at, and they don't have the kind of technical expertise. These are really economic development planning conversations, um, that kind of technical expertise, climate uh, technical expertise. So this is a place where philanthropy can be quite catalytic. Uh, we've been, along with some of our colleagues, putting funds together to re-grant to smaller organizations so that they can add capacity and fund technical assistance that could be available to those organizations as they engage in these processes. So this is a place where we're excited that philanthropy can play a role, and we've we've really leaned into this opportunity in the communities that we're supporting. Yeah. How would you characterize the uh, political engagement? So you're talking a lot about what the state is doing there. Um, is it easy to engage with policymakers in California? Does everybody say, yeah, sure, come in, talk to me, tell me what's on your mind? Or or, or maybe that's a utopia that perhaps isn't quite uh, uh, there yet. Yeah, we've had a chance to really partner with the governor's office, I think uniquely uh, with this administration. Uh, they're trying to achieve inclusive growth. It's the uh, focus of our work. And I don't want to be uh, Pollyannish about it. There's always challenges. There's you know, sort of the cycles of politics can get in the way, but there had been chances to partner with the governor's office, particularly around this bottoms up, just transition planning to more inclusive and resilient economies at the regional level. So that's working relatively well. Uh, the um, challenges we see sometimes are between the electeds at the local level. So if you're the head of economic development for a city and uh, or a county, and you're expected to participate in a collaborative across sectors to chart a new economic direction, that may feel like giving up power, which they are. And so resistance can come up. I think there's a good hearted group of civic leaders who are encouraging and working with electeds to come to those tables and really listen. And it unfortunately, some of those dynamics also, they come into play between the community groups and uh, the public sector organizations is a history of distrust, long history of racism. And uh, sometimes, and this is where philanthropy can help, it takes time to build relationships, to address issues of racism, to go and sort of repair the history of systemic racism in these communities. So that's a place where elected civic leaders and grassroots organizations need to spend a considerable amount of time. We fund some of that work in the communities that are central to our work. I guess in trying to drive forward that systemic change, part of it is helping government, the different functions within government and the different levels of government perhaps interact more fluidly with each other, right? Yeah. The um, the, the program that I keep mentioning from the state uh, is called uh, Jobs First and intentionally sort of with a brand name that is about jobs and careers. The um, 
it's the first time that, as far as we know, the state is actually engaged in economic development planning from the state level. And so what is happening, and this is, I think we see this in other systems in California, is the state coming in and saying, this isn't working. We're going to create another way of doing it. And many times it's not, you know, they don't have the power to shut something else down, but they have a power to create something new. So this sort of inclusive economic development planning at the community level, cross-sector, is an alternative to the way counties and cities have operated before. But I think that's a place where you know, we see a lot of opportunity for systems innovation. Uh, similarly, we see a need for innovation in the workforce development system. And there are some very innovative leaders there that we're trying to support as they rethink um, how uh, workforce development do dollars fall. Um, and there are relationships between our labor organizing groups and business leaders that similarly can be you know, obviously conflictual, but opportunities to partner in new ways. And there's some efforts like that that we're excited about in California. And those business leaders, I mean, obviously that's a big part of the puzzle, right? It's that corporate space, the private sector, uh, touched on the grant making and philanthropy, touched on the uh, policy making and government. Uh, what about the corporate space? How easy is it to engage with them to get their insight in terms of what that future economy could look like to help inform how you go about um, on your grant making and the sort of things that you support? Yeah, this is another role that I think is unique for philanthropy is we can be relevant and in relationship to leaders in all the sectors of our economy. So we have a chance to uh, partner with, get to know, listen to business leaders. And what I'm finding, which I think is quite fascinating, is business leaders, not in total, but in increasing numbers, are realizing that income inequality in our state is both morally objectionable, but also undermining their opportunity to have a sustainable business. So I see more business leaders coming to the table and saying, wait, we got to get at this income inequality. How can we partner with other uh, leaders across communities to make that happen? It's also important to remember that California, interestingly, uh, is primarily uh, small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses. So a challenge in business engagement, and I want to say something like 50% of folks in California uh, work in organizations that are uh, 100 people or less. And I maybe can get back to you with a better stat, approximately what I remember. And so finding a way to engage with businesses that are small scale is a challenge. And some of the larger businesses you know, are operating globally. They may have an interest in California, but they are less likely to be actually you know, someone who can drive an agenda in a state or wants to drive an agenda in a state. So businesses are allies in some cases and figuring out how to connect with the small and medium-sized business owners is a challenge that we need to work on. Yeah, yeah. And the context in which you're, you know, the context you're describing a, a lot of change um, as a foundation, as a large foundation, large grant maker, is, is, it, uh, is it challenging to, to adapt to uh, rapid social and economic changes? That you see around you. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you stay responsive, relevant uh, in the face of all of these things? That you mu you must have a, a healthy appetite for ambiguity. It's probably true. Uh, we've been doing uh, we've been doing the work that I've been describing, focused on income inequality and economic opportunity, for about seven years now, and we made a pivot from a more traditional program based institution when I came into my leadership role, and it was really an imperative that the board posed because we had not in the past been highly flexible and adaptive to changing conditions. 
So we built a model which, I mean, we have a clear goal, but um, within which there needs to be flexibility to address and uh, support uh, organizations as the environment around them changes. And again, if COVID taught us anything, it's that organizations need that flexibility. And we were able to provide about $20 million in extra resources to our grantees early in the pandemic. So they had resources to navigate through what they needed to navigate through. So some of it's having some financial flexibility. Um, the other is we built into sort of our DNA an ability to be nimble and to adapt as things change. Uh, we have a team, our program development team, largely strategists who work with our initiative leaders to adapt as we see results, evaluation results. We Our initiatives, we have four uh, core initiatives. Each one of them is time bound and has specific outcome goals. And we reflect on those every, usually every two at the two-year mark and then the five-year mark of a seven-year initiative to think about how they need to adapt. So we're regularly refreshing ourselves, and that is not a typical foundation structure. And it was challenging at first, bringing in strategists to work with uh, traditional philanthropic folks or public sector folks who'd come to the foundation. Was um, It wasn't easy. There's a different culture and it needs to be trust built. I'm really impressed by my colleagues here who've been able to create that trust. And that model's working pretty well. We've had two of our lead initiatives, the first two we launched. Uh, we uh, had those refreshed in the last few years. They took on slightly different directions. Our board got to know those initiatives well, and we were able to uh, earn their support in adjusting what we were doing. So um, I think it needs to be both you know, your culture of being flexible, being trust-based, but also structural in your ability to refresh what you're doing and adapt to the changing context. Yeah. Are you finding the um, the direction of travel positive? In other words, and I'm not saying are you optimistic in an unrealistic sense, but are you, you know, with this management consulting hat on, with the uh, appetite you have to understand uh, the impact that you're genuinely making, are, and, and, and noting also that philanthropy is, as you pointed out, just a very small, a very small component of the of the of the equation. Um, are you feeling optimistic that the the aims that you're uh, pursuing that you'll be able to achieve them uh, in the foreseeable future? Well, as you said, it's not um, it's complex and it's nuanced. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons for hope. We do have this opportunity. There's an acknowledgement that we need to do a lot of recreation, rebuilding. So I think that's a net positive uh, for economic opportunity and uh, and for low-income folks to get a good job and a better career. So that's one thing that brings me optimism. The other is there's historically high support for organized labor uh, in California and uh, the nation as well. And that's partly an outgrowth of the pandemic, but I also think it's a recognition uh, by society that income inequality has grown and that a whole part of our um, communities are being left out. So that brings me some hope and optimism. Our grantees always do. Getting to see their amazing work, uh, it's a privilege to get to see it up close. That's inspiring and hopeful. There's a lot of on the ground, positive, hopeful things happening. And then there's headwinds. Uh, there's uh, affordable housing in California is a real headwind for us. Um, there's division, as there is nationally, a little less so here in California, but the uh, divisiveness of our politics uh, gets in the way of 
uh, economic development and collaboration through partnership. And there's continued systemic racism. We just have to acknowledge that systems are biased and that gets in the way of making sure that when there is economic opportunity, it's accruing to everyone, not just, you know, the folks who uh, typically get the benefits. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the um, any any folks who, who are listening who, who would be in your neck of the woods in California if they want to um, learn more about your work, uh, perhaps see whether they might be able to seek some funding from you or some support or, or at least tap your wisdom. Uh, where would you guide them to? Well, this is the obvious check out our website uh, approach. We, we do uh, share, we're very transparent. It's one of our goals, one of our values. And so we share a lot about the work we're doing. We include our evaluation results. We have the broad strokes of what we're um, we share specifically who we fund, but broad strokes of what we're funding. And there's also a lot of external, we try to spend a lot of time outside the foundation, particularly my role of getting to know folks and bringing their ideas into the institution. So I'm all ears happy to get uh, comments and uh, requests from folks at dhoward at irvine.org and uh, can direct those to the folks who most need to see them. We're engaged in a lot of multi-funder groups as well. So I think our visibility in the philanthropic community is helpful. And for folks who are in that space and want to chat, they know how to get a hold of us. Excellent. Excellent. Now, on that note, Don, what's that uh, key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? There's an opportunity right now. We're in a window of opportunity uh, with change. I think comes a lot of that opportunity. So what I'd want folks to know is don't miss the window. We're seeing an influx of public sector resources. We see innovation uh, in the business side of addressing climate change and crumbling infrastructure and the widening income inequality. Uh, and I, I don't want us to miss it. If you're a philanthropic leader, you can provide resources to make sure that everyone's voice is heard. You can provide resources to make sure there are on-ramps to the jobs that get created, and that the um, players, frankly, who get to decide where those dollars get spent are truly in league with and are collaborating with community groups and ensuring the voice of workers and community residents are really reflected in the decisions that get made about how to deploy those resources. Wonderful. Don, thank you so much for taking the time today to join me and join us on the Do One Better podcast and to uh, shed so much light on your on your work. And, and here's to uh, great things for, for you and the team uh, in 2024 and beyond. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Don Howard, Chief Executive Officer of the James Irvine Foundation. For information about this conversation and more than 250 other interviews and case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not already doing so. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.